Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Ed Barnard. Based in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, Ed is an author and speaker with over 40 years experience in software development, spanning two distinct 20-year careers, the first being in operating system development and the second in web software development. You can follow him on Twitter at EWBarnard and check out his profile on LinkedIn. Ed is the author of two books currently published on Lean Pub, From Capone to Cray, Where Computers Really Came From, and Here Be Dragons, Finding the Joy in Software Development. In From Capone to Cray, Ed tells the story of the history of computing through the surprising connection to Prohibition-era rum runners, through the amazing accomplishments of cryptologist Elizabeth Smith Friedman, right on through the role played by the American National Security Agency and Cray Research. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ed's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing. So thank you very much, Ed, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Thank you. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first found yourself interested in computers and technology. Sure. Uh, this actually takes place near Seattle. And um, my uh, father, uh, Korean War vet, and then uh, took advantage of college, after, you know, the, the VA bill after, uh, uh, so this, we're talking the 1950s here. And um, he became an auditor, which I consider an extremely boring occupation. But at Safeco Insurance Company, um, this is the same Safeco that's, that is Safeco Field in Seattle now uh, for, for the stadium. But Safeco Insurance Company, based in Seattle, um, they were, this was the early 1960s, they were so impressed with his audit of the data centers, what they called them back then, uh, the, the server farm, that they put him in charge of the data center. And for the rest of his life, he was what we would now call the chief tech, uh, the CTO, the chief tech, technical officer. Uh, back then it was director of data processing uh, of, of whatever company it was. And so um, that meant that I was exposed to mainframe computers um, from early grade school. It also meant that I was discouraged from a computer. Uh, he was very highly pressured to, to follow his father's foot, uh, footsteps, but he did not want to be a preacher's kid. And knowing my dad, I understand that. Uh, and so he didn't want to pressure me into following his footsteps, but I enjoyed playing with computers and um, uh, oh, fourth or fifth grade, uh, mom drove me around to Radio Shack and, and a few other places to get some resistors and diodes from a popular electronics um, article. And then dad helped me do the soldering to solder together my, my first computer. Uh, so that's, oh, about 55 years ago now. Uh, it's it, um, been a while. And um, I was lucky enough to get a summer school program that taught Boolean algebra. So I learned about AND gates and OR gates and uh, I could follow a, um, uh, what was a half adder and then uh, and then a full adder and write out the logic gates for, for those sorts of things. And um, back then it was very, we did actually learn bin, you know, binary arithmetic and base 10 and base 12 and base 60 and so on. That was very commonly done. In, these were normal things in school, um, which at least in Minnesota is no longer the case. Um, and that's partly why I wrote, but um, I've always had computers as a hobby. And um, the third book that's coming up on Lean Pub, um, the cover is out there, uh, is has to do with Mount Rainier, which again is, is uh, Washington State, and um, uh, it's important enough to Washington State that that's what you'll find on their license plates. Um, 
and back then, and it's still true now, it's very rare to do a winter climb of Mount Rainier. Uh, the weather is, um, well, back then it was how people prepared for Mount Everest. Uh, the, the weather, the, uh, it was that severe, same weather now, of course, um, that uh, the, the standard training ground for Everest expeditions was uh, in the winter on Mount Rainier. And so uh, that actually formed a large part of my career, uh, what I, what I, the idea of experiential education. And um, so, and looking back, um, you wouldn't think that you'd learn software de development on, on a mountain, but um, I kind of did. And so um, that's a very, um, so the idea of being outdoors and uh, wilderness and so on, uh, those all became parts of my, what eventually became software background. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, actually. Um, I'm wondering, I've got a sort of question about that. So when you say, what was it specifically about being outdoors and facing that kind of challenge that translated into being helpful for a career in, in software? Um, a couple of things. One is the idea of been there, done that. If, um, if you have run marathons, then the, the, uh, the idea of having to spend an all-nighter is not going to bother you that much. You've been exhausted before. You, you've pushed through things before. Um, but the idea uh, also of taking a physical experience and turning that into something else, um, um, uh, learning, learning to climb a rock face, you know, learning basic rock climbing, or, or now uh, a lot of people do gym climbing, especially in Minnesota in the winter, um, do indoor gym climbing, things like that. Well, what you're doing is you're learning to learn. And so, um, and my, what I found with the software career is um, you need to keep learning. Um, uh, you may have, uh, most people have noticed that our, uh, the, the world of computers has changed and continues to change. There's nothing but change. And so um, uh, part of my way of thinking is, okay, whatever this next thing is, whatever this next project is, I know that I will need to take some time to learn something. I'll need to learn a skill or I'll need to learn a concept. And by the way, the idea of eBooks uh, where I can go and, and instantly download a book on that topic and see, okay, is this feasible? Is that feasible? Is this what I need? Um, the, the ability to the instant library is, is very, very handy. And that's uh, actually in, I prefer, I personally prefer print books. And if you were seeing me on video, you'd see uh, that's my L1 cache of books. The, the library is downstairs, but I, you know, I, I prefer physical books, but um, the electronic form, um, number one, if you, if you have to throw away thousands of books at a time, you know that having them inside a computer helps. But um, yes, so it's, it's the idea of transferring a skill. If I have successfully navigated the uh, through, through a wilderness and reached a destination, that gives me a confidence that I can find my way from point A to point B, even if point B is figuring out a network topology. Does that kind of make sense? It does actually, yeah. You're reminding me of an experience I had once um, where I was on, I, I didn't have like the most the you know developed background in being outdoors but I did you know was a, the kind of kid who loved summer camp and like liked camping and hiking and stuff like that and one time I was on a high school hiking trip with the sort of boys from grade 11 and 12 and I was you know sort of behind the pack enjoying the hike and you know being slow for whatever reason and when I got to the 
site where we were supposed to be making camp for the evening, the two teachers who didn't know the first thing about being outdoors were sit squatting down with all the other kids around them on a bunch of rocks at the edge of the lake trying to make a fire. And I remember going, oh my God, like they don't understand that it's going to get dark. You know, you can't all just sit around and you don't build a fire that way. And they were, you, they were picking up wood off the ground. Um, and, you know, you don't, you don't do that uh, because it might be wet and stuff like that. And anyway, so like, I basically had to like, and it wasn't like I was being proud of myself or anything. There was just no choice. I was like, okay, listen, guys, here's what's going to happen. The, the, you two guys, like you two teachers and the, these two other guys, you guys are going to build a fire. You're going to do it over there and you're going to build a little pit first. You're going to be in like, you know, then we need every, like four people were staying in each tent. I'm like two people from each tent are going to choose a site and set it up. Don't build it on top of a hill and don't build it in the bottom of a puddle. Uh, and the other two guys are going to go collect wood and you're going to collect that wood by breaking it off the trees. Um, and if it hadn't, we barely made it right. Like if it hadn't been for that, it would have been nightmare. But I guess I'm just saying that the idea of like, the, it resonates very strongly with me, the idea that there's like these transferable skills. Cause it's not just, it's not just the, the, the fact that I knew how to do all that stuff and that we needed to divide labor. Cause you know, winter was coming as it were, it was like, once you've been through an experience like that, you know that if you end up again in an experience where everybody's doing the wrong thing and maybe even panicking, you, you've done it before and you can go, okay, I know what this is like. No guarantee that it's all going to work out okay, but nonetheless, I've been here before. Um, and so actually, it's interesting. So you ended up uh, studying, uh, just seeing from your LinkedIn profile that you ended up studying computer science at university, uh, but on your way there, you spent a couple of years at the uh, United States Air Force Academy. Yes. And in fact, it was Academy cadets who um, uh, we grouped together to do the winter climb of Mount Rainier. Oh. And um, you talk about goals. Um, of the six of us, um, half of us had never been on a glacier before. And so we were going to do a winter expedition climb of Mount Rainier because we thought, well, you know, uh, this is a very serious goal. And uh, this is a very challenging goal. And so that's why we took it. And um, uh, so there, you know, so that in itself is, is a story and, and uh, that'll, be a, that'll be there. But mm -hmm. um, another thing that, and so, and that was in 1977. 40 years later in 2017, I sent a note over to the editor of the Mountaineers Magazine. They're like the Sierra Club, but they're Washington State based and said, hey, would you be interested in a um, trip from 40 years ago? Kind of there's a you know, 40 year, uh, this is what it was like kind of thing. And I got no response at all. I thought, okay, well, that, you know, that, that happens. Uh, it was just not spur of the moment thought. Almost exactly a year later, I got a note from a different person. They had had a change of editors and I think somebody went back and swept the missing email ah. and said, yes. Uh, why, yes, uh, definitely. And we went back and forth and we're working on the story. And, and then I said, but um, unfortunately, thanks to a wet basement years ago, I don't have any photos. And the very polite, it was very politely worded, but it came back. Have you seen our magazine? It is, <laughs> it's color, it's glossy, it's color, it has pictures. 
no photos, no man, no no story. Yeah, we could maybe go back to. Um, so the people that I hadn't been in contact with since 1981, I went and tried to find those five people, and I hadn't been in contact with them. Um, I had a friend who I did know who was an academy grad. He gave me the email addresses that might or might not be current. Within hours, I had responses. I had people digging through their basements, dusting off and rescanning, carefully re-delinting, in, in the literal sense, the slides, the 35 millimeter slides uh, and for me. Um, my first note back I, uh, was from a woman. Now, if you're out in the mountains for eight days, um, on a glacier, you know whether or not there is a woman who was part of your group. I know we did not have any women in our group. Um, we were all teenagers, you know, or late teens, uh, early 20s. And she said, hi, I'm, um, I am Randy Nelson's wife. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on his email account because Randy is currently hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada and he's 1,200 miles in. And I'm thinking, <laughs> now, I know exactly how old these people are. So Randy was like 61 at, at, at that point. Um, and I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. We went back and forth a couple more times and she said, well, actually, I, and uh, she sent me a picture of the two of them at Forrester Pass, which is 13,000 feet, if I recall right, in the Sierra Nevada, not that far from where you are. And she said, well, you know, I started out with them, hiking with them. And, um, after the first 600 miles, I decided it's, it's not for me. Now, if a woman is willing to walk 600 miles before deciding it's not from her, she either doesn't make up her mind very well, or she is really awesome. And I suspect the latter, but um, apparently the whole, the whole issue was Randy had really long legs, which I know, and she didn't. <laughs> and you know, you, you can see the two the two of them next. You know, he's she comes up to you know to his shoulder, mm -hmm. and so so I get it. But so she came back home after only six hundred miles hiking California from you know, the you know the Mojave Desert and everything else. But after we were so close knit and we had done so much together, and this is a big part of experiential education is you don't do it by yourself. Um, the team building aspect and um, that. There's no question. We, we, we just, people just did things for me and we compared notes. Uh, none of us had ever seen all of the photos together. You know, we were at uh, college and then they were all uh, academy grads and so Air Force careers. And uh, we compared notes and found some stories that um, really can't be published. But it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, funny thing, they all centered, centered around the one particular person. But um, and he's the person I did Air Force survival training with. Oh. And uh, we were not, we, we, we became known, but that's a different story. Um, that's actually the topic of the fourth manuscript, uh, waiting at Lean Pub. But um, I almost got off track there. Oh, yes, no, that's, that was, that's, no, no, that's okay. That's really great to hear those, to hear those stories and the idea that, I mean, you know, putting together that, like, you know, and, and the things that these, these bonds and these lessons can actually last for decades uh, and can be kind of like, you know, brought back uh, to the front of mind after all that time is actually really, really instructive. Um, so you said that um, a bunch of your, your colleagues went on to uh, careers in the Air Force. Uh, you, you chose not to. Um, you went to university, and as I understand it, and you, and you um, uh, studied computer science. 
Uh, this was at, I think, the University of Washington in the late 70s. Yes. Um, and uh, quite a few of the people listening to this podcast typically are people who've either done it or are thinking of doing, doing computer science. And I was just wondering, I've got a couple of questions, one of which is just generally, um, what was it like studying computer science at that time? Um, you didn't have the stack overflows. There weren't even necessarily all that many magazines to consult and things like that. Just what, what, was, what was a typical class like? Um, two, uh, there's actually two pieces to that. At the Air Force Academy, um, it's not normal for a lowly freshman to be tutoring the upperclassmen, but I could. And this was an ALGOL, by the way, algorithmic language ALGOL. Uh, the Burroughs operating system was written in ALGOL. The compiler itself was written in ALGOL. So it was a, a self-compiling compiler. The first time I'd ever seen that concept, which kind of, I couldn't figure out how that could possibly work, but um, clearly it did. Um, that I learned about the idea of a bootstrap. But anyway, uh, so that was one piece was the weirdness of being the, 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 uh, the put upon freshman helping the others. Um, but that also turned out to be the connection that allowed me to find the people 40 years later. Um, at the University of Washington, I really wanted to take an assembly language programming course, which was by the Department of Engineering where they actually got things done as opposed to the Department of Computer Science where they talked about nice theory. The trouble was that the prerequisite was Fortran. And, I had no, and on paper, I had, no, I had no Fortran coursework. Yes, I'd been writing Fortran using a key punch for about six years at that point, but and, uh, but the, the, the professor was very kind. He said, okay, how about I give you the final exam for the Fortran class? And I said, great. And so he did. And I took it and handed it back to him. Remember, everything's pencil and paper back then. And um, uh, also while I was registering, this was the summer of 1977 and I was in line registering for something. And I heard a couple of people talking um, in, back, back in line, you know, these college, college age uh, people, and said, um, uh, yeah, I saw that new, new movie, Star Wars. And the other guy said, yeah, I did too. And yeah, it was okay. And that was the end of the conversation. So I eventually <laughs> went and saw Star Wars. But mm -hmm. uh, yes, that, that was the, uh, that was it. it was, yeah, it was okay. Anyway, um, he never told me how I did on the exam. He simply signed, he simply um, signed the thing saying, yes, I would be allowed into his class. And it so happened that that class gave me my career in um, supercomputing. That, that was, um, went to get my job with Cray Research, that, that one class was the prerequisite. They were looking for, for people who could do that type of assembly language programming. So you never know what it is that's going to happen. Um, back then, uh, doing coursework, we typed things up on a key punch and we handed decks in at the window. And um, usually within half an hour, you'd get the deck back and some um, green bar paper, which was the printout, which, and what that means then is that might be your one chance for the day. Um, and so what that, and so there's, and so uh, picture, you know, loading, okay, you're, you're working on a web page. You get to load the web page once today that's your quota to see if everything looks fine. And sure enough, uh, you'll, you'll get to stand in line and you'll get to, you'll get to do a reload once tomorrow also to check your changes. 
And and it sounds like it's, that's interesting when you mentioned handing the cards through the window. So to, to extend the analogy you're using, and imagine someone else actually had to type in type in the code for that web page for you. So there was the possibility that they made an error and there wasn't an error in your instruction. Was that, was that part of the process as well? Oh, yes. Uh, generally speaking, your errors will be very carefully typed. Um, right. Thanks to my dad being the, the data processing manager for the state of Washington, I had access to an IBM mainframe. And what I did, um, that department does not exist anymore and my dad's dead. So, I, so we don't need to cut this out. I can tell you that, um, yes, I, I hung out with the systems programmers and uh, read the, the detailed principles of operation manuals and so on. But I was also able to hand in pieces of paper and get them key punched. Now there, it's a real operation, which means there will be one person who does the key punching and the second person who does a, ver a verify. Mm -hmm. And what they did, what the verify is, is you flip the switch on the key punch machine and the person types it in a second time and the key punch verifies that the whole pattern, the pattern of holes punched in the card matches what the person's typing. So it's an actual, so it's actually literally typed twice. That's how they avoid the errors. I've, I've got a very detailed question about that. So, um, so I think we probably most of us, have, you know, even whether we've come close to interacting with a machine like that or not, we do have an idea of, you know, maybe from movies or something like that of these like mm -hmm. key, key punch cards. What did you actually do to, did you, did you feed it into a slot into a machine at the end? Uh, to what actually we, punch the cards, you mean? No, no, to, to feed them into the computer. Oh, then later you're going to have a deck of cards, which goes into a card reader. Um, not uh, not that unlike a floppy disk. You would present okay. the floppy disk and it would be stuck into something. Okay. Only this okay. time it's, it's um, oh, uh, think of, the, of a currency. Have you seen a currency counter at a bank? Yes. Where you, where you take the, the block of your, your wad of well-laundered cash, um, hand it across to the teller, and the teller sticks it in this thing, and it goes, you know, to add to. Uh, yeah, yeah. And a punch card reader is, is very similar. Uh, less sophisticated, but, uh, but very similar. Um, yeah, I, and so I that's was, how that worked. My image was of Tony Montana in uh, Scarface, uh, sitting in that little room counting all that money, but um, a similar thing. You're not too far <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> By the way, if you only get access to a key punch person once or twice a week, what I did, how do you, so how do you correct errors? I did get a stack of blank punch cards and I used an exacto knife and it actually worked. Oh, wow. I, I carved my, my edits. <laughs> That's fascinating. And it actually worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's such an interesting to think about the, the sort of being having that like sort of like literally tactile relationship to the to the the way that it, the instructions are being fed into the in the computer in that direct way is so interesting. Um, I have a, uh, I have a there's question. actually there's actually uh, a lesson there for today, which is back then computer hardware was so slow that the um, you know the um, the weakest link, the most expensive resource was computer time, not programmer time. Now we're, we want the programmers to be more efficient. No, we did all sorts of weird things and took all sorts of programmer time because uh, to give the, uh, to allow for the fact, you know, insane optimizations that, you know, why in the world would you do that uh, to save one, because you're gonna save five seconds every other week. 
and that's worth it. Uh, so the, um, the paradigm in that sense, as in what is the most scarce resource, has very much changed. And, that, and that's, that's a big difference. Go yes. ahead. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Speaking of um, uh, lessons for today and things that have changed, this leads me to um, a question that often comes up on this podcast in one form or another, which is if you were starting out brand new in a career in computer science or software engineering today, with all the resources that we have available and the really fast computers and things like that, would you yourself do a formal university degree or would you maybe try and find a way of doing things more independently? That's a really good question, of course. Um, uh, it's still around. There, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a board game, Life, the game of life. And in the board game, you have the option of uh, going basically a voc tech, um, a tradesman's degree or a computer degree. And some go, you know, and some have a very, you know, and so it, which is exactly that strategy is, is, is it going to be worth it to, uh, for, is the degree going to be worth it or is getting the, the journeyman trade, tradesman going to be worth it? And I still see the question is similar to that, but um, uh, as, as, um, one thing I hugely recommend it would be a liberal arts degree. Um, my son is now a professor of computer science. He has, uh, the only thing he, he passed his doctorate, doctoral studies, the only, he, he only has the dissertation left. Uh, and I've heard that's actually not trivial, but no. it was so fun doing uh, with his masters. I got to help him with his homework, with me, the college dropout, which I thought was pretty awesome. But um, um, there is, um, there are formal things and formal ways of thinking about things that I did learn in computer science that still serve very well. And so there is a, um, uh, there's a degree of background or education that will be a gap if you don't get it. But um, at the same time, it's, um, is the book learning really worth it? Um, because student, you know, college tuition has gotten so expensive that, um, you know, the 1970s go to school, go to college model is different from the 2020s go to school model. And so I'm not even sure I can give a relevant answer except in terms of um, computers. Okay, software development is a people business. I am not a people person. I do not want to be a people person. I am the, uh, I, I do much better dealing with computers. Um, and but it is those skills that are going that um, they're 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 the necessary parts. Well, okay, you like climbing a mountain, but if you can't build a fire, there might you you you're not going to like climbing the mountain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. You need to be able to build a fire too. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, it's the and that's why I said liberal arts degree. It's the breadth of skills. Um, my son, my son has a history degree, but he's, he is a professor of computer science at University of Jamestown in North Dakota. Um, and by the way, uh, he and his friend were, uh, at, when they were um, uh, students there, uh, they were driving the department head nuts because they had 
hacking pretensions. And so they would do things to the professor as on screen as he was trying to do a lecture. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> that same person is now his department head. <laughs> it came full circle. Must have been and impressed. They both know it. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I mean, I, I personally couldn't agree with you more about the, I mean, if, if you've got the temperament for it and you've got the uh, ability to do it, um, you know, the liberal arts kind of undergraduate years are, you know, extremely practical in the long run, um, uh, even though they might not appear to be so in the short run, you know, um, anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows that, you know, I got, I got an English doctorate and then I became an investment banker, you know, like it's, 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 and that, that is not as unusual as it often seems to people. You know, Henry Paulson, the former Goldman Sachs CEO, Secretary of the Treasury, I think, you know, he got an English degree for his undergrad. Um, you know, these, these things are not as rare as they seem, and there's utility in, in, in certain types of education that might not be apparent until you have it. And that's the, that's the classic kind of ancient paradox about those kinds of learning. Um, so the next, it's interesting. I think you're so, exactly right. I, yeah. I, it, um, um, that's the same concept that I mean with experiential education. Right. Okay. Uh, your, you know, your career might have been outdoors. Well, um, you, it, you didn't learn to build a fire first try. You can have the expectation, oh, to learn a new skill, it, I might have to practice to you because of the experience you know, whether it has to do with how to, how to do a, um, you know, add two numbers in a spreadsheet. Well, you know, it's still, you expect to have to learn or expect to have to practice. So the cross coupling is super valuable, I think. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, you just reminded me of something else along these, these lines, which is, um, you know, often people, you'll hear, pe sometimes people will complain about, you know, I learned something, but it was a waste of time because I never used it. Um, and going from your, you know, using your, you know, analogy of doing, well, not analogy, example of, of outdoors stuff and how that can be helpful, for example, when if you're climbing a difficult mountain, if it's winter, if it's nighttime, uh, or I don't know, I guess if you're, you know, training for training in the Air Force for what happens if you get captured, things like that. Um, one thing when you've been when you've been faced with a circumstance where if you didn't, if you hadn't figured something else out in advance by trying it numerous times, you would have been in terrible trouble you lose that idea that just because I never used something, it was never useful to me. Um, and you can think of an example being like, you know, if you train, if you ski a lot uh, and in the back country, uh, you wouldn't complain that you never got to use your avalanche training. Um, if you never got in an avalanche, right? You'd be like, thank goodness I did that avalanche training, even though I never had to use it. Um, uh, because if I, if it had ever happened, it would have come in pretty handy. Um, and put it, that's, I guess, you know, thinking about the way you're using the term experientially, you know, there's kind of a technical way that's often used in universities about getting a job. But what you're talking about is much, much deeper than that. And uh, fascinating to me. Um, before we move on, so I was thinking about how to structure this, because typically uh, the way we do these things is we talk about a person's kind of progression through their career, and then we talk about their book or books. Uh, but your, the point we've gotten to where you're talking about your career comes in midway through the book. Um, uh, um, so yes. so we'd, 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 we'd kind of be crossing streams if we did that. So I'd, before we move on to talking about your book, I actually wanted to um, just leap ahead. And so I mentioned in the introduction, and you, you talk about this um, in various places in your profiles online and stuff about how after 20 years in your first career, which we're, we're skipping, 
to, just so we'll get to it later, um, uh, you then embarked on a new one. And I was wondering if you could talk about that change in careers and why you made that decision. Yes. Um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> that it wasn't, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, my first career, um, primarily in assembly language programming, and we eventually got, and uh, that's actually a chapter in the first book, uh, we eventually got devoted, demoted to where we actually had to write C programming. We were doing things, uh, and so we were dealing with the Unix operating system. Um, and so um, writing device drivers inside Unix, um, right alongside the kernel developers, um, uh, except what we were doing was still on bare metal. Um, so, and that was our, and that was our demo, that's how we consider ourselves demoted. Uh, we were totally full of ourselves, in other words. Um, and, uh, but what that meant was I had experience with Unix type um, operations. And we're, uh, this is late 1990s um, where um, the web is becoming, you know, and, and, and so web servers are becoming a thing. Um, very quick side story, and this, uh, okay, so this is when we were owned by Silicon Graphics, SGI, um, and um, uh, with the servers, and, and so there, there was a, uh, there were maintenance contracts where um, uh, you have this service level, so we will be on site to fix whatever, you know, fix or patch whatever it is within two hours, within four hours, within three days, whatever it is, and uh, there was a, um, uh, a call from a site uh, known as Danny's Hard Drive, D-A-N-N-I, Danny's Hard Drive. And many people have heard of uh, that operation. And uh, there was a, uh, so, um, a hole in the operating system, which was uh, exploited so that uh, they could get in, you know, a pay site, so you could get inside pay site. And naturally, that was broadcast all over. The, it was called, it was Usenet back then, but, um, and uh, so um, uh, our headquarters said, uh, California, Northern California gr group said, oh, we'll, we'll be right over. And, you know, and, and they said, no, wait till tomorrow. This is the best traffic we've ever had. <laughs> um, anyway, but um, the point being that um, uh, the server manufacturers, what was not said out loud was the leading edge and most of the, and most of the, of the Unix-based servers were porn servers. That's what the leading edge was late 90s, early 2000s, that time frame. Um, meanwhile, then, people coming into the industry, meaning coming out of high school um, and or uh, primarily high school, um, uh, they considered themselves computer experts. They grew up with computers. Well, the way what you if there is a problem with a Windows computer, what you do is you reboot it. Well, with um, by this point with production Unix servers, that was generally not considered the right answer. So the fact that I could get in as root and um, uh, make edits, make changes, do things safely without taking the server down was a skill that was relatively unusual because back then, uh, people from, um, flooding the market from high school didn't have the Unix background. They had the Windows-based background. And, uh, and likewise, didn't have um, uh, the hard knocks from the aerospace companies saying, uh, no, you will not take this down again, now, will you? 
and uh, and so um, I try. Basically, I tried to build my, my my own little consulting company, and what I didn't know was I was I was riding the top peak of the dot com boom straight into the ground. Uh, 2000, 2001, and so on. Um, when 9-11 happened, um, that affected the airline companies because, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the aircraft manufacturers because the airline companies stopped buying aircraft. Well, we were, we were the aircraft companies were one of our major, major customers. We were supplying credit computers to the aircraft, aircraft manufacturers. And that was stopping. So um, end of September, um, meaning two weeks after 9-11, uh, Cray Research did a, um, uh, a layoff. And um, at the same time, the US was doing a lot of job protection in the sense of um, extending um, unemployment benefits and so on. And uh, meanwhile, then, I, because I had been with Career Research so long, I got the very, very top tier of the, basically, I, I got nine months pay. And I said, hey, I, so I was already trying to do this company off the side. I, I had, um, I said, hey, I wouldn't mind if you put me on the list and save somebody else um, and, I'll, and I'll take the layoff. And so I did. And, and so I had my nine months. And um, uh, that let me, and so it took a year for me to figure out that no, uh, the bills were not getting paid. Nobody, nobody else was getting paid and they weren't paying me. Um, so I tried to work my way back into the job market. And at that point I had no relevant experience on a resume, period. I am um, uh, literally trying to step my way back into a, a different job market. I said, oh, you know, scripting languages, uh, piece of cake, and uh, was enjoying that. Actually, um, IBM was doing a supercomputer project, the IBM Blue Gene system. And, and so, uh, and, and that's just down the road, and that was 45 minutes away, down, just down the road from me, where they're doing it in the, the IBM Rochester site in Minnesota. And so I hired on as a technical writer. And so I went from um, bare metal operating system programming to technical writing, working my way back into the job market and um, found that I was having fun with the scripting languages and the fact that I knew a thing or two about Unix, I had, because I had written some of it, um, that background has continued to pay very, very well. Um, yeah, people talk about packets going across the network. Well, yeah, I used to write drivers that sent those packets across a network. Uh, and so um, the and so you never know when useless knowledge is going to turn out to be useful again, or just give you a background or an orientation. Um, another thing about, you know, you mentioned Avalanche. Um, uh, in the outdoors, sometimes a crisis will happen. You, you take a hard spill uh, on your skis, or yeah, you're, you're down the slope 40 feet, but your other ski is still 40 feet back up the slope. How are you going to get it? And, but more often uh, when a crisis happens, um, like it's getting dark and we don't have a fire yet, um, it's a group crisis. Well, have you, known, have you ever run across an IT operation that has had a crisis happen to them. Yes. 
<laughs> it's a transferable skill. How do you work with the people who are hip deep in it with you? What do you? And so the fact that you have successfully navigated a crisis, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Um, you know, it's a Selden crisis, and they will figure out. You know, there's the external part and the internal part. Well, if you know the nature of a Selden crisis, and you can look over there and say, "Gee, you guys are acting like this is a Selden crisis," and and I know I know this piece, I know that piece, and so um, uh, this type of crisis, the most important thing we can do is have a conversation with upper management. Let them know what is happening because we've dealt with a crisis before. And so again, it's a transferable skill. And um, that's a large part of what my weird writing is aimed at is trying to help people think of, of the transferable, transferable skill. Go ahead, please. Yeah, no, you know, thank you very much for that. Actually, you gave me the, the what I always call the greatest gift a podcast guest can give, which is an opportunity for a segue, uh, which is uh, to writing. Um, so you got this job with IBM writing uh, and you just brought up, you know, the, the writing is very important to you, partly for this reason of, telling these stories that have these transferable skills in, in them. Um, when did you start writing? I know that you've written for PHP Architect and things like that. Was, was it around this time, at around the time of the turn of the century that you began writing or had you been writing all along? Um, there was a person who did a keynote talk at a, um, at, my, at a first conference that I went to and where, uh, this would be like 2015, 2016, 2016 I think. So, um, five or six, uh, five going on six years ago. And um, um, basically explained the importance of other people sharing their knowledge by doing a conference talk. And this was PHP specific, but again, it was um, the general concept. And um, yeah, I had taught software before, you know, actual platform teaching. My wife's a teacher, mom is a teacher, uh, son is a teacher. And so I didn't see that as, as, as a, as a problem, but also uh, I found out there was a group of people willing to mentor would-be speakers, and um, uh, you know, give us your abstract that you're going to present as as your uh, uh, as your offer to do a talk, and we'll take a look at you know we we're conference organizers we'll we'll take a look at it, and in um, and so my very first one and um, and offered it. And I said, uh, you know, I, um, I've never spoken at a conference before, uh, but in a former life, I did teach operating system internals in, in assembly language for Cray Research. And um, I got some very good feedback, which finished with, and oh, by the way, you could do a conference talk on pretty much anything you want to talk about, about Cray Research what it was or this lessons learned and so on. And, huh, so a year later I did. And I thought, well, okay, this is what it was like programming a Cray-1 supercomputer, which, which people, many people had heard of and you, but very, very people, very few had actually, um, well, with a show of hands, I, I never encountered anyone who had ever actually programmed, done any work on it, on a Cray-1 itself. And, um, uh, from a person who I respect very, very highly, very knowledgeable, uh, he did an amazing talk on the theory behind Alan Turing's uh, famous first paper and, and the Entscheidungs problem. 
Um, and he said, that talk was over my head. That's when it hit me, oh, people don't know how to do, and I, and I asked around, nobody knows how to do binary arithmetic. I know people didn't use slide rules anymore, but binary arithmetic, nobody can do binary arithmetic. What do they, what do they think a, net, a, a network mask is? Oh, that's a net mask. But um, shifting, you know, shifting or masking or um, uh, doing an and versus an or or um, extracting pieces uh, because you masked it. And these are all, these are, well, I learned that in fourth grade. And so what I had was a blind spot, a complete blind spot. And it, uh, and so I, so then I started doing conference talks on teaching this. And what I did was I, I took a piece of um, uh, PHP software, you know, so it's, it's open source that um, uh, for constant time in, in, uh, in coding and said, we're going to walk through these four lines of code. And we're, and that means we need to learn one's complement and two's complement. And, and we're going to do integer arithmetic in two's complement, but we're also going to do some shifting, which is one's complement. And, um, and this was very heavy going for people. This is, this was new and alien concepts. So I'm thinking, well, this is fourth grade stuff. And, um, people are saying, well, no, that's not HTML. That's not how we, not how we do things. And nobody saw the relevance. And so it took me a very, very long time to begin to finally come back to the relevance, which is, um, the tech, the, um, one example is the, is the coding interviews that people do that uh, a lot of people have a really hard time with, but then a very few people have no trouble at all because they're, they're trivial. And um, I've gone to any number of interviews, including at IBM for as an IBM programmer. Um, gee, we never had anyone who could actually do this before. To, but to be, well, gee, you're shifting by two bits and it's not, a, you know, it's, it's easy. And so I wrote a book trying to explain my thought process and um, this different way of thinking, which is more uh, for fans of Apollo 13, it's that way of, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of what Apollo 13 people would have been putting on the chalkboard. And, um, and so, but then the other part of that was I realized, yes, I kept running across a lot of interest in, in uh, Cray research either um, the mystique of Seymour Cray himself or um, supercomputing or, or just Cray, Cray's position in that. And I realized nobody ever wrote a book. They did for the hardware side, but nobody ever wrote a book from the software side. And I thought, well, you know, I am not the best person to write that book, but I'm willing to write it. And so I did, and it was awful. And I rewrote it a couple of times and I finally split it into three books. And you have read book number one from Capone to Cray. I, I started, and, and so, you know, connecting the dots. Um, uh, book number two is intentionally intense. And it's what we, it's what in the 1980s we considered, considered perfectly normal, but it's not anymore. And so, and so I'm trying to teach lost skills to some extent. Uh, but also the idea of being um, getting practice learning, learning to learn. 
and um, but also share some of the stories before they're gone. Um, you know, I'm, 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 my generation is, is retiring out of the work, workforce, if they can, or they're still here writing code, hoping to make a million dollars from LeanPub, one of the other. Yeah. <laughs> and we hope they do. Uh, thanks very much for sharing that story of the origin of, of, the, of the book, uh, uh, Capone de Cray, but also the other books that, you know, were part of the original big project. And just so everyone knows, um, I mentioned the, other, the second one in the, uh, in the introduction, but it's called Here Be Dragons and it's, it's available on LeanPub. And then the third one, which you've talked about a couple of times already is called um, Surviving Spring Break on the Mountain, uh, which isn't out yet. Um, uh, it's really interesting. I, um, so one of the things I wanted to try and frame when we now start talking about the story that you tell um, uh, in From Capone to Cray is what a serious business computing is. And um, uh, uh, there's a couple of specific examples of that uh, and sort of like, as it were, kind of computing adjacent or even kind of like prior to computing kind of ways of thinking are. And for a lot of people who may have caught it, like when you talked about being taught computing in school, computing related stuff in school, I think that might've surprised a lot of people, right? Who hear like, oh, should kids be taught programming in school nowadays? Might think that the idea that people should learn things like that in school might be a kind of post, you know, mid nineties web Silicon Valley tech billionaire boom kind of question. Um, but there are these epochs in sort of interest in computing. And one of them happened around the time of the second world war. Uh, and, and that's a big, that's a, that's a big ball of things. Uh, one of which is, um, you know, calculating uh, trajectories on ships at sea. Another one of which is um, nuclear bombs. Um, soon in the like, and and but even prior to that, there was um, cryptography and breaking codes, which was very important um, uh, in the in the Second World War. But prior to that, of course, as well, which is where we'll be going in a moment when I'll be asking you to tell some of the stories briefly that that you tell so well in the book. Uh, but then there was even this subsequent period, shortly after the Second World War, shortly in in sort of historical terms when all of a sudden there was a cold war with a competing, a, a very sophisticated and powerful country with a very competing worldview to that of the United States. They were both nuclear armed, they were enemies and someone was getting to space first, um, you know, and that was the Russians, not the Americans. And so in this period of time, like computing, like let's say like kind of mid-century, like it, it did seem mysterious to people to some extent. There were the images of the, you know, the big rooms full of machinery you can't see inside of and stuff like that. But there was a very on the ground sense that like this was a fight and there was gonna be one winner. Um, and you talk about that in the book, like, you know, when you when some people might ask like, why would you spend all that time? Like, for example, you mentioned optimizing things to get the extra five seconds out. And it's like, well, when the stakes our nuclear war, people have a lot of incentives to spend all that a lot of time doing those sort of in the moment kind of boring things. And so with that context said, uh, there's this super interesting origin that you place that you start uh, telling this story, uh, which is with um, Al Capone and rum running. And so I was wondering if you could, could tell us how, that, how that's relevant as the beginning of the story of the development of computers in the United States. I sure could. Um, I gotta, I'm going to inter interrupt myself twice first, though. One is exactly like you said, when we're in the midst of a, of a Cold War, and we might actually be helping save this country from a nuclear fallout. Um, 
that that means that what you're doing is important. And when you're doing what is when it's important, it really doesn't matter if it might objectively be boring or not. And um, one thing I did with, with the Cray One talks was, well, you know, I've I've had people, someone came up, you know, people ask, well, why would anyone do that? And and it really wasn't like that at all. And so that's part of what I want to uh, portray is, um, you know, literally it's the title, finding the joy in software development, and it's in finding it to me it's 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 in learning and it's in finding importance uh my second interruption is true story uh at cray research um when we shipped software uh we also shipped the the math library and part of the math library was something uh, a math library called um fast fourier transforms the fft library there were export controls we could not export that library to certain other countries. And we, uh, the, word on a, the word on the grapevine inside the company was, the reason was the fast Fourier transforms were used for calculating cannon, cannonball trajectories during the US Civil War in the 1860s. And they were still on an export restriction. Oh, wow. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so um, yeah, um, I have friends who grew up in Chicago, and so I hear stories about Chicago. And of course, the essence of uh, Chicago is 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 Al Capone, and uh, and or Mayor Daley, which was effectively a you know there's there's Mayor Daley Senior, Mayor Daley Junior. Uh, effectively, it was a hereditary hereditary thing at that point, and. Um, um, but what's not so obvious is O'Hare Airport. Everyone's heard of O'Hare, um, but O'Hare Airport was named after a guy O'Hare. That's true. But Eddie O'Hare was Al Capone's mouthpiece, Al Capone's lawyer. And so that's the connection to O'Hare Airport, almost. Yeah, almost it's, it's yeah it's the almost yeah exactly it, yeah, yeah. it's the iron but um uh what happened was um the uh the o'hare senior fast uh fast eddie o'hare um someone uh he grew up in st louis and so uh um and of course uh, charles Lindbergh was flying out of st louis um and and charles Lindbergh's from uh central minnesota so of course there's a minnesota connection also but uh so o'hares were growing up in st louis and he was a lawyer and uh there was this guy who basically patented greyhound racing what he patented was the uh the rabbit that the, uh, the rabbit on a stick that runs around the track and all the greyhounds chase it around the track and making and making you know they were making all sorts of money and um and so uh, this would be uh, before Prohibition, 1920s, if I recall right. And uh, so uh, the guy died. And O'Hare went to the widow and purchased the patent rights uh, for this Greyhound racing invention. And he wanted to take it to Chicago. Well, the boss of Chicago is Al Capone. So he went straight to the top and became partners with Al Capone and they buttoned up the, the racetracks 
um, with this invention. And so they made millions. And um, then of course, prohibition happened. And um, uh, so the, um, uh, the liquor, liquor aspect happened also. But um, eventually, uh, we all know that Al Capone went down for tax evasion. Um, a highlight of the trial was uh, the book, Al Capone's bookkeeper. But another highlight of the trial was Eddie O'Hare, his, his lawyer. Now, his, the lawyer's part could have been kept secret, but historians speculate that um, it became uh, a highlight of the trial that the, the guy who betrayed Al Capone was his lawyer, Eddie O'Hare. Be, at the same time, his son, Butch O'Hare, was applying to, to become a cadet at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Well, you're not, in the 1930s, you're not gonna let somebody into Annapolis who's associated with Al Capone. They want heroes at Annapolis, not um, mobsters. And so there's a lot of speculation, but no proof that I know of, that, um, his, uh, his, his betrayal of Al Capone was to portray him as a good guy while Annapolis was considering the sons um, becoming a cadet at Annapolis. He was admitted, he, uh, he did graduate, became an ensign and became a pilot. Um, and he already knew how to fly um, because he flew with Lindbergh on, on some of the mail routes and so on. And uh, so in 1942 in the Pacific, off an aircraft carrier, the, the son, Capone, uh, the son O'Hare, Butch O'Hare, um, uh, uh, the carrier was being, the battle group was being attacked by um, Japanese uh, medium bombers. And one thing, this is after Pearl Harbor, and one thing bombers are very, very good at is dropping bombs on battleships and aircraft carriers, and they tend to sink when that happens. Well, most of them had already been destroyed in Pearl Harbor anyway, and at this point, uh, the U.S. Navy was basically, basically being kicked all over the, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, this has nothing to do with what was going on with the convoys in, in the Atlantic, of course, this is Pacific. And this is early 1942, and uh, Pearl Harbor having happened the previous December, and things were not going well. Um, Butch O'Hare, there's a lot of circumstances, it's in the book, Butch O'Hare single-handedly um, sank five or six and chased off the nine Betty Japanese bombers, basically saving the entire aircraft carrier. And this was all within sight of the carrier, they were that close. Um, he, uh, his, he only received one bullet hole uh, which was an, it hit his airspeed indicator, so that didn't help very much. But he at that at that time he only had about thirty seconds of ammunition to use, uh, and so um, he then was awarded the uh, the Medal of Honor by President Roosevelt, and he was the first naval aviator ever to receive the Medal of Honor, and so. Um, What in the world does that have to do with code breaking? Well, uh, as it happens, um, Al Capone was a uh, prohibition um, alcohol, you know, he, he was a rum runner. The rum runners used 
uh, encrypted communications. Um, this was, you know, shortwave, you know, radio transmissions. Anyone you know, with a shortwave set could could pick up the transmission, but it, and it was dots and dashes, but it was encrypted dots and dashes. These were picked up by the Coast Guard. Uh, it was the U.S. Coast Guard that was tasked with um, uh, foreign alcohol coming in, and and the big pipeline was uh, Detroit, uh, Windsor to Detroit, from because you're perfectly legal in Canada, short trip across the river to Detroit. And so that was that was a major pipeline. But meanwhile, then uh, there were all these encrypted communications that nobody could break. Um, so they went to, they went and talked to this this guy who had been um, he was in military intelligence. He was a cryptographer um, for General Pershing actually in World War One. Had uh, run a cryptography school, and um, in fact, he eventually would be the founding cryptographer cryptographer of the NSA. I mean, this, he's, he's an important guy, um, very knowledgeable. And he said, no, I'm in the army. I, I'm not interested, I wanna, I wanna keep my army career. So they talked to his wife, which kind of sounds dumb on the face of it, best move they could have made. Um, she in about, I believe it was six weeks, uh, by hand, pencil and paper decryption by hand, broke the codes, cleared out the entire backlog in about six weeks, hundreds and hundreds of different ciphers um, uh, as a, I believe, a contractor for the Coast Guard at that point, just the, just the little wife. The husband was the famous cryptographer. Um, there's a strong speculation at this point that it was actually the wife that got the husband interested in cryptography. But um, so there's some very interesting things going on there. But um, it turned out that when World War II broke out, they would hear communications like from the Germans the Coast Guard over the shortwave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were the same codes, the same types of codes, the same approaches coming in many cases from the same radio stations, base stations, same same. Same geographic, you know, the same transmitter is, is what I'm trying to say here. And so her, and so um, this little tiny, uh, like four, uh, four, and eventually I think it became 11 people, little tiny Coast Guard group actually broke the Enigma uh, by hand. They, th they thought that was very, very difficult. It took them like six months to break it. Now, Nobody else ever, you know, but she, yeah, she broke Enigma with, with pencil and paper by hand and um, uh, how she did it is actually available online now. It was originally a highly classified document, but that was, it was actually the rum runners, their encrypted communications that became the route to gaining the skill with uh, production crypto, if you will. And uh, which is just really odd. And so, uh, that's why I call it from Capone to Cray. And, um, and with Elizabeth Friedman being the connection then to William Friedman, who was the founding cryptographer for, uh, for what became the NSA. And um, uh, another side note is the National Security Agency was created so that um, all this cryptography stuff would be taken out of the military. The NSA was created to be outside the military chain of command. And this is the first time. Uh, Coast Guard is military. Uh, the, the Army Signal Service, Signal Intelligence Service, all that was 
was military. military. Uh, Navy had, had the group also. And so the NSA was outside the military right after they got their charter and, and came, began to come into existence, except nobody, nobody knew it, uh, it became clear that the Russians had the bomb. And that changed everything in terms of the NSA's mission. And so, um, because atomic weapons, uh, those were those, those a military capability. And so the NSA again became very, very closely tied, um, you know, like six months later, but uh, the way the NSA charter it originally was is uh, kind of a weird story in itself. But um, that's the story. That's why I connect Al Capone to Seymour Cray, uh, who um, back beginning with the, oh, uh, yeah, kind of skipped, skipped a step there. In the during World War II, in the US Navy, there were a bunch of cryptographers. Now, these were both um, mechanical engineers who were built, physically building things with vacuum tubes and so on, and then math mathematicians who were doing theory and actually creating programming computers and so on. Um, the Army effort uh, became the ENIAC, ENIAC computer. The Navy effort became, uh, remained top secret. They uh, quietly formed a company, a top secret company in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, they took over a glider factory that had been making gliders for the World War II effort. Well, the war was over. He had no, nobody else still wanted gliders. So he had an empty factory. And so they, uh, they made it a naval place. So they had naval uh, security there. And uh, that's where the first programmable, uh, I should say the first stored program computers were made, uh, were right here in Minnesota. And, um, the University of Minnesota, of course, is just down the road. The University of Minnesota uh, provided the entire 1951 electrical engineering class. Virtually all of them got hired on by this, by this secret company, including a guy named Seymour Cray, who had worked as a code clerk, as a, just totally coincidentally, in the Army. Uh, he did Army service uh, during World War II. Then he, he did the GI Bill, and, went to, and so he took college after uh, after his World War II service, um, as many, many, as many GIs did, and uh, became a college graduate, and went to work for this um, top secret company. And um, as we know from security clearances these days, if he worked as a as a code clerk in the, obviously in the, in the U.S. Army during World War II, chances are he had some sort of clearance. And so, getting recleared, I would think, would be a would be a, an easy thing. Um, and that's just reading between the lines, but um, that's where Seymour Cray started and then became the father of supercomputing. Go right ahead. Yeah, no, thank you very much for sharing that. That was just fascinating to listen to. I mean, I've seen, this is the book I've been reading and now I get to hear the person telling the story uh, in, in, in audio and at, as it were in person. Um, that was so great. And uh, one thing I wanna really thank you for is for capturing so well the kind of nature of your approach to telling these stories in the book and the drawing connections between these, these, well, these, these, I mean, I really mean it like these inherently interesting stories that have these, to some extent, kind of, some of the connections drawn are kind of tangential, but they're all very meaningful and interesting. And the idea that, the idea that, um, you know, like, for example, people would have probably a lot of people would have known, oh, O'Hare International Airport was named after the Medal of Honor winner who, you know, uh, you know, fought off these Japanese bombers, became the first Navy Navy pilot to win a Medal of Honor. Um, he, he ended up getting lost in action and then, you know, 
and, uh, and this was very tragic. And so the airport was named after him. Uh, but then there's this connection to his father and to Al Capone and this idea putting together that connection between the making the fact that it was made public that he'd sort of the father had spilled the beans on Al Capone at bond the same time that the son was applying for Annapolis is just so interesting and it, but it, that that and that and the way the the way you told everything else too really captures the the beautiful way you bring these connections together um before before we go on to talk a little bit more about oh okay before we go on to you talk have a little just described debugging <laughs> making connections that nobody else notices that's the uh, for me that is the art of debugging and that's why i do this in the books is uh, it's it's a technique that i call finding finding patterns in the noise if you you find you you know something that's just a little bit odd that nobody else has noted and and you start digging and you come up with the goods and that is a skill that i don't know how to teach but if you can get it, it's really valuable. And in, um, so what, that's why the connections is, it's the most basic skill you have in software development. So keep going. Yes. Yeah, no, th thank you Sorry very much for making that explicit. And, and no, that's very important. And, and it's, it's interesting too, because it goes towards explaining partly, I and this is just my reading of it, but like you have to, it's, it's, you'll be much better at it if you inherently enjoy going down the path, not knowing where it's going to take you. And not knowing whether it's necessarily going to take you anywhere, uh, and that's one of the really interesting things about 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 how the book is structured. Because one thing you do at the beginning of the chapter, the sections, is you show these various paths with these mind maps and things like that to give the reader some knowledge in advance. Like here's here's we're going to be going down all these paths. Here's how like I can show you visually how they all kind of fit together, and it's very interesting. Um, uh, and Did that we're not. Help? Uh, that oh was yeah, an experiment on my part. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that helped, and, and very very particularly in in the very particularly in the sense that it gives the it gives the um, reader an understanding of the kind of approach that, that you've got an approach and that what they're being presented with is not is not random uh, that it, that it does fit together but but it also and I don't know if this is intentional but it also has the kind of curious effect of looking a little bit like those like you know those a typical thing in like a, a a cop show when there's a bulletin board and they've got pictures up and people are drawing these connections or, or, or else, you know, the sort of like, you know, well, yeah. theorist. Yeah. like that's very, there's a very fun element to it that it, that it sort of visually sort of invokes that. Um, so I, now we've had this wonderful, we've taken this awesome time and thank you so much for going into so much depth on that one chapter. And I really wish I could just have you recount the entire rest of the book that way, but we, <laughs> we want people to buy and read the book and also, also, we've got a time, but uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we go to go on to talk a little bit about Cray research and your work there um, and what happened. Um, I do want to call attention to you were talking about Elizabeth uh, Smith Friedman there. The, and there's this great book, which you talk about a couple of times in the book called The Woman Who Smashed Codes by a journalist called Jason Fagoni. Uh, I hope I get his name right because I follow him on Twitter. You did. You're exactly um, right. And it's right over there. Um, I know you can't. You're, you're, uh, if you can see me, yes, it's right. It's right over there. Um, he's yeah. on Twitter, very personable. I believe he's based in San Francisco, as a matter of fact, as, as a journalist. Yeah, I think I think I think he is. I, and again, I only know from from Twitter, and I don't know why I would have followed him years ago. It was before he he published the book. But um, uh, but anyway, it's a, the woman who smashed codes. It's not on LeanPub, but buy it anywhere you could find it. It's it's uh it's it's really it's a really interesting thing. And there's like all these all these cool things about her, like um. Uh, even in the end, like, you know, her, her, her and her husband have a shared uh, grave 
stone at Arlington Cemetery. If, if you know, they both served in the military independently, so they could have had their own individual gravestones. But you know, he died first, and she decided they'd have a shared one. But she's got this fascinating. She she hid a cryptographic message in the gravestone in the words "knowledge is power" by using different by by alternating serif and non-serif fonts for the letters. And it was only when someone who kind of knew a little bit about this kind of stuff noticed the odd switching of the fonts and then and just independently put it together like 20 years later. So, I mean, the idea of, of Elizabeth Friedman putting together this kind of like secret message on her and her husband's gravestone and telling no one about it uh, is just, is just it, it is the most awesome thing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It tells you something about the sort of like, you know, there's these and, and another feature of, of, of her career is how secret a lot of it was and how held back a lot of it was. Uh, not and then then things that's complicated by the fact that a lot of what she was doing was spy stuff, but you know there is there is a bit of drama to the idea that her husband became this very famous person and there she was well very, she, her husband became a very well known person in the circles in which people like that are very well known, and uh, and you know her her work wasn't necessarily so well understood and so there's that you know the fact that this book eventually comes out after all kinds of stuff is released is, is just fascinating. Um, so anyway, but you brought us, you brought us to Cray um, and uh, you know, the background um, a little bit. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, so we've been talking about a lot of technical stuff, um, uh, very, very important, but uh, companies don't just come around because of, because of brilliant inventors. Um, a lot of other things have to happen sometimes. And you've got this great line in your book where you talk about the legendary Cray One supercomputer came to be built because of the legends and not the other way around which the brilliant line, it's basically the, 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 if it hadn't been for the legends, sometimes perhaps carefully cultivated, it might've been difficult to get the funding for the, the work that was done. And it might've been difficult to get the company off the ground. And it might've been difficult to get the first computer built and delivered to its first customer. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, and this is the thing that people, when people who are familiar with it, what are, what are sort of one or two of the legends of Cray research? Um, well, let's see. Um, I know that's a broad so, question. So, yes. Um, okay. Ones I ones that I observed personally personally are, are in the book anyway. But um, well, yes. Let's let's start with Boeing Aircraft Company. So this would be um, um, around June of 1980, um, <clears throat> and this is Cray One serial number 20. Now at the time, uh, Cray Research was making. Uh, I believe that year they actually got up to, to a dozen, making a dozen mainframes, but it had been you know four, five, six mainframes per year. And so um, when Cray Research, when they when Cray himself founded the company, they were they thought there was a market for maybe two dozen mainframes. Well, okay, so this was so um, talking about making five or six mainframes. This was not a startup plan. That was the entire plan. That is the long, for, you know, that, that's, that's a 10 year plan. And uh, these are all, all, all made by hand, uh, 60 miles of twisted pair wire uh, going to each main, mainframe. Um, and in fact, uh, if there is a wiring problem, a wire mat problem, uh, what they needed to do was they actually sent uh, a, um, a full or a partial wiring crew from uh, manufacturing headquarters at Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and they would send the wiring ladies over to uh, wherever the site is. Could be Japan, could be you know, around the world. Uh, and those ladies were considered so valuable 
uh, remember we're talking 1970s and 80s at this point. Well, 80s, yeah, 1980s really, that uh, the crew was split across two aircraft. You know, we're talking 747s, but the crew was split across two airport aircraft in case one of those planes went down. You know, sometimes I've, you know, I've heard about this with executives or, you know, boards, but uh, no, Craig did this with the wiring ladies. And um, they were that much of a company asset. Um, so um, at Boeing, we've, we've got this uh, Craig One mainframe coming along. Uh, and this is where the Boeing B-29 Superfortress bombers were made for World War II. This is an old World War II era manufacturing building. Um, at the south end of Lake Washington in Seattle. And by the way, yes, there are a number of World War II aircraft at the, at the bottom of Lake Washington. Um, and um, the word on the street was that the, the 737s, and I believe the 737 MAX these days also, that were built there, the runway was short enough, the plane could take off, but it was too short for it to land. So when that pilot, um, takes off the brakes, he is committed. He is headed straight for Lake Washington and he needs to get off that runway because he's not going to be turning back. Now, there are, you know, SeaTac, you know, SeaTac Airport is not that far away and so on. But yeah, they, uh, they had to be pretty confident when they, when they took the plane off that runway. Um, anyway, so um, as you can imagine, uh, Boeing Aircraft Company has some really good forklift operators. You have to. If you've got a million dollar fuselage, you want the crane operator to not be putting dings into the fuselage by swinging it around or something. Um, and so um, uh, there was a, and so the, uh, the, the cargo truck backed up and there's this Cray-1 mainframe, four or five tons on one loading pallet. And so, um, and the, um, a Cray-1 arrival is always a big deal. And so they were like vice president level people. So in other words, the suits were there in attendance. And, um, and of course the Cray people were there. So we were standing around and we, we were wearing suits also because we'd been warned. And um, so we were, and we could hear a forklift in the distance. The, 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 the pallet was there. We could see the mainframe, we could see the pallet. And uh, we could hear this forklift off in the distance, you know, this large manufacturing area. Um, outside and um, er, and then come around the corner and suddenly it went oh, down to a very sedate uh, procession because of course suits were there. And right. so this was going to be a responsible forklift operator who crept his way over um, and lifted up, uh, picked up the pallet off the back of the truck and then obviously very, very carefully, but you know, obviously they, they got one of the best people. Um, um, uh, got, uh, got it down near the ground, turned around and headed to the building where it was going to be. However, uh, Seattle does have rain and, and it's, that's still true. Seattle does still <laughs> rain sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is a Seattle rain, rain festival that, that is celebrated September through May. And the general saying is we don't, we don't tan, we rust. But Seattle does have rain. And so the, um, the walkways between buildings have awnings. They're covered walkways. Well, this was a heavy mainframe for a pallet. So this was a big forklift. The top part of the forklift would not fit under the awning. So, we're, so he's stuck outside. So we, uh, we, we stand around for a while longer and then we hear these two forklifts off in the distance. 
they came around the corner and saw the suits. And so we now have this pair of forklifts, smaller forklifts, sedately approaching us. And they loaded this $10 million pallet, one on each side of the pallet. So, so they got, um, the forklifts are facing each other with a pallet in between them. And they pick up this $10 million top heavy cylinder, um, monolith type cylinder, uh, several tons, pick it up and one's going backwards, one's going forward to take it underneath the, with all the suits watching, wow. to take it underneath the awning. Um, they got it to the other side of the awning, set it very carefully down on the ground and got the hell out of there. <laughs> Meanwhile, the big forklift has made his way, all, done the circuit all the way around the full, all the way around the building, you know, large manufacturing building. So he is now on the other side of the awning, picks it up, and takes it to the uh, takes it to the door where it's going to be wheeled in. Um, it all worked, and and nothing fell. Nothing fell over. So we have this little uh, hand uh, forklift, you know, like you see at the box stores, uh, Costco or whatever. Uh, you know, little, it's a forklift that's on a handle, and so the the uh, we called it a come along. So we we wheeled it down the uh, the tiled the Hollywood, you know, 1940s style tiled hallways to where the machine room is. Well, machine rooms require um, cooling and require electricity, but there's no and but there's no subfloor. So what they did is they built a raised so they built it built it up a foot and a half up. So there's this cube like a like a like a fishbowl room basically um, with a raised floor and and so uh, they put it left the left one so it's got a big picture window on two sides and they left a ramp with a door with a hole for the door and then they're gonna and then they're just gonna uh, you know nail it in you, the computer is gonna be there permanently and so we just come along we got this four and a half ton thing up the ramp at the top of the ramp it turned out the ramp was the doorway was high enough if the mainframe had been level. Mm. It was tilted at the on the it was a quarter inch too short. Well, none of us felt none of uh, four guys are not going to pick up a four four and a half ton mainframe to get it level and watch it tip over onto the floor with the suits watching. And we weren't going to stand around at the top of the ramp holding it while we were while people decide what to do. So we got it going back down the ramp. And no, we didn't want it falling off the edge of the ramp. There was no guardrail here. And so we stood around. Suits made some phone calls. The and the uh, it's a union shop. The carpenters um, uh, came in, made it high enough that we then were able to get it get the mainframe in. But um, the simplest of math. Measure, you know, measure once, cut, cut twice. Um, it just didn't quite go as planned, but it, it, it did eventually happen. And so that was the arrival of the Cray mainframe. And um, um, uh, so, that, so that was my first Cray one. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great that's a really great story. Um, especially setting again, as I sort of brought up really, the stakes are actually really high. Uh, with things like this, you know, at, at this period of time as well. And, you know, you know, the, there was a lot riding on, on that for all the people involved. Um, that reminds me of just one, one brief story that you tell in the book that I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, um, which is uh, just having to do with the sort of creativity and resourcefulness that it takes to get big projects like these through. Um, and so there was this one point, I think it was for the very first 
the very first Cray supercomputer when these two labs, um, Los Alamos and yes. Livermore, were competing. They both wanted it. And, uh, and the thing was that they were both willing to pay for it and they were both willing to pay enough for it, but they were capable of preventing the other one from getting it. And so there, were all these, there was all this money invested in, in the company to build this supercomputer and to build more in the future, but they couldn't, off, they couldn't sell their first one because neither of the first two customers would let the other one have it. And this has huge, because when you under, like when you see that there's a financing element to these companies, and if they were relying on the sale of this first huge product to be able to finance ongoing operations, uh, not being able to sell it was actually a potentially catastrophic problem. And I love the fact that Seymour Cray and presumably his team came up with the solution of giving it to one of the two competitors for free. Uh, um, that, you're missing a point, okay, okay. Uh, an important point, and you're missing okay. it because it's not, it's not in the book. Oh, okay. And that is the government labs needed bragging rights. How are they going to recruit the best of the best? And it's through the bragging rights. And um, Seymour Cray was well-established at this point. And so supercomputers already existed through control data at this point. And so we got the serial number one of the newest product why don't you come work for us and not for the other guys? Um, the recruiting aspect was bragging rights and that had as much to do with funding as anything else. Uh, and so this was, this had to do with the lab's very existence. And so this, this bit of the bragging rights and, and just poisoning the well, no, this was part of how the labs did business. Anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, yes. no, 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 that's so fascinating. I, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I assumed there was something along those lines that had to do with kind of reputation or even projects they had planned or something like that. So thank you very much for filling in that detail. That's so important to know those kind of things to explain like what, what was at stake, right? It's like the, to them, it's the future of their institution uh, and competing with each other. Um, and, 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 and just the final sort of detail that you recount in the book about that is that now he couldn't just go and give it away, right? He needed to the money. So the idea was that they're, they're the sort of like the excuse, as it were, for pulling this off was, oh, what well, you'll, you'll get to have it for free for six months. So you can test it and you can see if it all works as promised. And then at that point, you can decide whether to buy it or not to buy it. Uh, and so they get, first of all, he gets it out the door, but it also means that after six months, they have to make, they've agreed to make a decision whether to buy it or not which then gets rid of the whole problem of, of the competition with the other lab, because either they'll buy it or the other lab will. Uh, and it's, it's just absolutely, absolutely brilliant way of solving a, like a sort of non-computer problem, but that had everything, everything to do with um, you know, what was gonna come next. Um, on that note, actually, um, I think we should probably switch to the, uh, the last part of the interview now that we've talked, talked enough, and you've been talking enough, that's for sure. Uh, and I, I say that as you know, having, maybe not been as economical with your time as I should have been. But um, uh, the last part of the interview, if, if the guest is a Lean Pub author, we, we like to ask them a little bit about, to talk a little bit about their process of writing and you know, how they got their book up and things like that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you, how you wrote the book. Well, um, you, you've actually talked about it a little bit already, but I guess I, guess I mean in the technical sense, did you, did you use Word and then do something else? You know? um, it was... Um, first, uh, let me hit the philosophical real quick, which was, it was iterative. I, um, I wrote things and then realized that nobody had any idea what I was talking about. 
And so I wrote more and then finally realized this is such a convoluted path. I'm not sure I can even draw a map. And that's where the mind maps came from, right, right, was right. to show the connections because they were obvious to me, but boy, they were not obvious to anybody else. And then I realized, oh, I really, my way of thinking is different from a lot of other people. And um, uh, it's just, um, you know, what, what do you select for? And so if that's the case, then maybe what I can be doing is trying to better explain my way of thinking. But that's like describing the color blue to people that have a, a blue red color blindness. Well, it's a lot like red, right? Right. <laughs> um, okay, so literally um, from the writing standpoint um, with my, um, uh, what, the company I work for, we got hit by um, uh, a brute force hack attempt, uh, trying to uh, find out passwords. And so um, um, I offered a magazine article to PHP Architect, because we do, we're a PHP shop. Um, and, um, but then shortly thereafter, Boss and I went to a PHP Architect conference. And the editor was there and said, um, you know, I never heard back. Um, are you interested in, no, the guy at, standing there talked to the editor on the phone and, and he found it in his spam filter. Oh. And, um, and five minutes later, it was a yes. And it, and it became a three month, three part article. And uh, by the way, the, the first line was learn from the enemy. And I, and I call that super, super important. It's, um, it's from, it's from the, not the horrible movie, but the book Ender's Game by, by Orson Scott Card. Um, when uh, I forget the, the, the main guy towards the end of the book that taught Ender, um, uh, he was explaining to Ender that um, uh, you, know, uh, you will lose, but you will win because you will learn from the enemy. You will learn how to beat the enemy because the enemy will teach you how. And uh, to me, that's a software development skill. And that's why before I talk about um, um, Chased by the Bad Guys, originally I was going to title it Chased by the Bad Guys, how I learned software development. And I kind of changed my mind on that. But uh, being chased by the bad guys gives me some insight for software development, especially if uh, you're dealing with websites, because sometimes websites do uh, have um, not nice people uh, stop by. Yes. Um, I, I've heard Bitcoin exchanges have that too. Mm -hmm. uh, today's topic, yes, in the news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so um, um, I uh, I began doing articles, which became conference talks, which then talking whether the people at conferences became articles and so on. And so it's kind of a back, synergistic back and forth both from the standpoint of teaching, what can I share? And I also found that I had kind of a unique perspective. And so I could, well, basically I'm weird, but I could put a weird perspective on things. And um, um, people come away from my talks shaking their head, but also having learned something. And, um, but the editor for, for the magazine wanted articles submitted in markdown format. Gotcha. Well, I can do HTML, I can do PHP, I can do assembly language, but my goodness, now I have to do Markdown. 
Well, you just start typing and, and it's when you come to the end of a paragraph, you hit return twice. Okay, I guess I, I got that one figured out. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, but I also wrote my own post-processing system for trying to do a manuscript and so on. And so when I, when I came across Markua, um, that it already that had um, solved those problems rather more elegantly than I had on my own anyway, um, uh, this became really easy. So uh, my workflow, and I'm so glad of this, is um, I actually use Scrivener for my okay. original typing. And, uh, and I use Scrivener because um, I don't do outlines. I don't do mind maps, strangely enough. Um, I uh, give myself a couple bullet points and then I start typing. I am just, I'm, I'm unusual. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a linear thinker. And I can type an article straight through and other than very minor rewording of a sentence, I don't change things around. It's, it's just, it just flows straight through. Um, and, but for something that's book size, um, I, I want to be able to rearrange things. And so Scrivener is, makes it very easy for, what I do is, is every head becomes a separate little document inside, you know, the hashtag, hashtag, title, you know, in other words, level two head. Um, I, I separate those, I, I make each one a, a piece and that makes it really easy for me to move this around or copy it or, or this and that. And so all my, um, content editing, and by that I mean rearranging, um, I do in Scrivener, and then I do a, a just a dump into my text editor. I, I use PHP Storm uh, as a PHP person. I'm so close to the text anyway that, um, and so, um, uh, uh, which has perfectly good support for mark markdown files. And then there is a tool for the Mac, I'm, I'm on a Mac, um, now, I'm on a Mac because it runs Unix, not Linux. I grew up on Unix. I don't do Linux, but I do do Unix. And um, I, so I've kept that. And yeah, I don't do Windows. Uh, Windows and I don't do very long, do very, do very well. But anyway, um, there's a program called Marked2, M-A-R-K-E-D-2. Um, ironically enough, the, author, the, the, the guy who wrote it is half a mile down the river from me. Oh, wow. Our, you know, you just, it just so happens that he's a Minnesota person, but um, uh, he, anyway, so, so it is a markdown viewer, which means then that I, and what that does is it does a better job of uh, showing me listings in place and showing me images in place than the straight text that I would have in, in the editor. Um, part of the reason for that is I tended to have them separate over, um, because Scrivener does not play well with images inside the, the flow. So I got, so I had, and so I, anyway, so Scrivener and my IDE, which is PHP Storm. And then uh, as a viewer, I will often have marked going also. And um, I've tried various things for flowchart type things. And, um, uh, but I'm also finding uh, a coworker of mine, um, uh, uh, he was showing me that he communicates with himself very, very well with mind maps. And I, and I realized from what he was saying and exactly what you said on Criminal Minds, the, thing, the, string, the strings between the dead people's pictures on, on the, on the um, corkboard in, in the background, um, the, um, 
the, the mind maps that are showing the relationships between the topics. Um, and uh, I realized that because I'm here, there and everywhere, and I'm trying to show connections that um, I can actually, um, I'm actually helping the material. Um, if I, when I read somebody else's book, that's highly detailed, that's, you know, um, right in front of me is you know, domain, domain, domain driven design by Eric Evans. Um, it's holding up the laptop at the moment, which means I'm not reading it. <laughs> um, I don't look at his listings. I read his descriptions of the listings. I'm very, very text oriented. And so the, the code itself, I don't care. Um, I, I, I can glance at it, I can see it. Um, one, one language, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of code in 50 years. It, it, uh, it's, it's the author's thinking that I'm, that I'm looking for. But if I'm going to write a book, sure enough, it helps if I put some pictures in there or some images or some graphics or some way to break it up. And um, because most, well, all normal people are going to be much more visually oriented than I am. Um, that also, by the way, means I don't do podcasts and I don't do videos. Sorry, but I do books. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing that. Actually, the um, for uh, you know, it's it's funny. I always like to say to people that we 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 save the sort of technical sort of approach that each particular author takes towards their writing and their processes to the end. Uh, but there actually are people who skip to that part, um, which is interesting because they're so interested. And and just for anyone listening, uh, there were a lot of technical terms in there like Markdown and Markua and IDE and things like that. Um, if you didn't get them all, that's fine. We'll have links to to explain all these things in the um uh, in the transcript. Oh, in the transcript, um, hopefully, I'll, hopefully we'll catch them all. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, it's so interesting hearing about people's different approaches and and um, to to writing and it's sort of. And one thing I found in interviewing people over the years, a lot of people who are into programming sort of really, really love to come up with the ideal kind of process and love trying out different tools all the time. Uh, and so they really like hearing those stories. Um, the one the one thing I would I guess add to it is um, just because I only learned about it on Saturday. Have you heard of draw.io? No. It is Tell the most, it. if you're a diagramming person, I was going to say diagramming nerd. If you're a di if you're really into it, 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 I haven't used it a lot yet, but like, it is just amazing. Um, you can go to draw.io. You can just click create new diagram. And it's just, it just in the browser. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's amazing. And there's, there's an app that you can get as well for it that you can download. Um, and I, I can share. I continue to search for something like that. Yes, and I, I really need it for one of the books that's not uh, well. It's it's what I what I call book five. It's it's up there, but it's not available yet. I really need some diagrams. And um, my favorite thing, I still have a copy of Windows Seven that I boot as a virtual uh, thing on my Mac, so that I have Windows Seven <laughs> because there is a a flowcharting tool that is the very best. And by the way, my boss still has a plastic flow charting template oh, wow. you know, for, for actual pen, pen and ink. Yeah. Um, so my boss and I, he's an old Navy chief. Okay. Uh, my boss and I get along. I bet, I bet, yeah. But anyway, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a link to Thank that you. In, in, the, in the transcription as well. And of course, I'll, I'll send one on to you as well. Um, the last question we always like to ask when the guest is a lean pub author is, um, if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or if there was one bug or terribly annoying thing, problem that you've encountered with LeanPub, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? Yes. Um, if there were an easy or easier way of getting feedback, 
Right. Um, with, uh, if I put something up on Amazon, which I haven't, but if I put something up on Amazon, um, I, 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 get the, I get the dreaded book reviews. Worse yet, I get zero book reviews. But if um, uh, that would be the, the, the big thing is, um, well, in fact, uh, the, the founder or co-founder, I'm not sure which, uh, Bill Pollock of um, No Starch Press, said you know, the most critical thing is getting that feedback while you're writing the book. And I have uh, split, resplit, restructured, sorted. I, I've actually, I literally threw out um, over 100,000 words. I just plain yanked it out, threw it on the floor. Um, eventually put it back in as, as a separate book, um, as pieces of uh, three different books. Because, and so, um, based on discussion or, you know, but still, you know, just like any kind of um, iterative release process with any kind of software, um, if there was a way to get some, get, if it, well, I'm not sure how to get feedback for my books. You know, I can put a, I can put a blurb in, say, contact me on Twitter or, you know, this and that, but if there was a simple process like Amazon has for getting reviews, um, or comment, you know, that sort of thing. That I think would be uh, golden to the people who are trying to be craftsmen. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, we do we do hear that from authors um, from time to time. Um, we that we don't particularly that we don't have reviews is something that we, we are going to have someday. Um, the whole lean publishing idea is kind of based on on feedback, on getting feedback. Publish early, yes. publish often is our motto. And the fact the fact that this is actually something that we don't have something more worked out on is is an area where we know we need to do a lot of improvement. And it is kind of funny that we haven't gone there yet. We will, we will. But we have from the beginning though, um, there is an email the author feature on the landing page for a book that people can use. And we, we point them to that where we can. Um, I, when we're contact, contacted by people who have questions or who find it just in our help center documents or just find it on the page. Um, a lot of authors do what you do, which is they put a section at the beginning of the book with their email address. And it might be dedicated per book project email address or something like that saying, contact me. Um, so actually email has been the way that a lot of people have done it. It's a bit ad hoc, but um, you know, especially if you're early on in a project, it's kind of doesn't need to be all that systematic. We have had one or two authors who've told us stories of like staying up all night and coding their own feedback system and stuff like that. So people do that sometimes as well. Uh, but having that, that feedback in the form of reviews, but also feedback more in the form of like, just contact the author and give them comments. We do have that through email, but nothing, and it, and that can be double blind, by the way, they, they don't need to give you their email address and right. you don't need to give them theirs if they use that form. Um, uh, although at that point, people do like to share emails anyway. Um, but uh, but yeah, we do, we do do, there's a couple of things like that that we do, but something systematic around feedback, like, you know, if someone could go like, you know, could choose page number and like have a little field and say, here's the typo or whatever, something like that, that's more systematic is definitely something that we do want to do one day. Uh, well, um, I have I, a, uh, I have a second comment if that's okay. Oh yes, definitely. Um, yeah. Yes. I am extremely pleased with how easy it is to, um, build and produce good looking books. Um, and so, uh, so that's a huge, 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 uh, plus is, is this, is the system that is there and it is in place. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, but the other side of that is it's not real clear to me, well, okay, once the book is 100% complete, does that mean I should go away and, and take it somewhere else? Or 
you know, because Lean Pub says, well, we're, we're, we're aimed at works in progress. Well, okay, does that mean I'm allowed to stick around and sell books that are complete? And I'm not sure. And, and, and so there's a little bit of a blind spot there in that sense. It's not obvious to me that, um, you know, I'm, okay, right now, a conversation going on in my mind, because I've got, I've got six manuscripts that I'm trying to get, you know, COVID happened, by the way. Um, and so I, I've, got a, I've got this log jam. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, do I try to get one to completion and then take it over and put it on Kindle with Amazon? Or should I try to get all six up and complete and for sale on LeanPub and then look at trying to move the one over? And by the way, I'm convinced that getting all six available, partly for the feedback aspect, is, but then, but then the other question is, well, gee, can I sell finished books on LeanPub? And it's not, it's hard to find a spot where LeanPub says, well, yeah, we're here. Yes, thank you very much for sharing that. That Us getting to know that that's what people are thinking or, or what they're not thinking is actually like some of the best feedback we can possibly get because you know we know what, it's like anybody who works on any product or, or whatever project, you know what it is. And you can sometimes be very hard to know that people aren't getting the message that you wish they would. And yes, LeanPub is very much a place where you can publish completed, finished books. Um, the typical process that we try and give people when they're, you, when they're using LeanPub to publish in progress, like I've got three chapters, I'm going to publish it, and then I'm going to publish it chapter by chapter, get feedback, change stuff as I go along. Um, typically, what we say is when you're done, done, when you're 100% done, now you've got a decision to make. Do you want to keep selling it on LeanPub? Do you want to keep selling it on LeanPub and elsewhere? Do you want to stop selling it on LeanPub and only sell it elsewhere? Those are the questions that you need to ask yourself when you're done. But LeanPub is definitely a platform for finished books. Um, not just you don't. It's not the, just for books that are still in progress. Um, we haven't. We actually have. It took us longer to do this than it should have. But we have an upload workflow, which is for author. It was. It was actually not. The idea wasn't so much for finished books. It was. There were a lot of authors who were like, "I've got my own workflow set up for creating PDFs, EPUB, like ebook files." but I can't use LeanPub because I'm not using your writing process. Why don't you just let me use my own and upload the files that I've created myself? So we do have that. And what that means is, and here's, you know, sales pitch. If you've got a finished ebook that you own the rights to, you can upload it on LeanPub and be earning 80% off every sale in like 20 minutes. So if you've got, if you've got finished, we've got an article about, about that, about like setting up a book and, and, and using our upload writing mode and like, and that's more royalties than you're probably going to earn uh, anywhere else that isn't basically kind of self-hosting or some version of that. So um, yes, like LeanPub definitely is a place for finished eBooks and um, uh, we'll definitely try and get better about our messaging around that. Um, what you just said, that little section where you answered my question, if that was a separate video, I sure would have watched it because I was looking for it. Okay. So um, okay. yeah, um, share that with the authors. It's not, it, it wasn't, I might've been looking in the wrong place, but it wasn't self-evidence. And a lot of people do videos. So just take that little tiny slice of, of a minute and a half or whatever it was. And um, yeah, that was very useful. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. We'll, we'll definitely think about how to do that. Uh, well, and thank you very much for taking so much time out of your day. I really appreciate it. It's been almost two hours now and uh, for sharing all those great stories uh, and the motivation behind telling them. And uh, thank you very much for using LeanPub as a platform to write and publish your books. It has been so easy. That's that has been it has, it has been such a relief to use SleanPub. That is that's it's really been nice. So I'm I'm sure appreciate that you found me.
and you read my book. I appreciate that too. It was great fun. Um, thank you. And um, uh, I should mention, we we got up to forty degrees here today. So I'm I am in t-shirt and shorts. Oh my! I like telling California people that that right. Yes, we uh, we haven't been above freezing for a while, and so this this was great. Anyway, so. Okay. Thank you. I sure appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.